Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. In today's episode, Julie and Ginger are starting the first part of a two-part series on therapeutic parenting. What it is, why we should be using it, and what are the basic concepts and tenets that make strategies therapeutic. Let's listen in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Ginger Healy. And I'm Julie Beam. And we're excited to share with you both from our personal experiences and our professional knowledge, what it truly means to be attachment-focused, trauma-informed, and how we can help children impacted by early childhood trauma. So today we're going to discuss therapeutic parenting. And why are we going to do that? Because therapeutic parenting is the most searched term on our website. More people come looking for that therapeutic parenting page that we have there than any other. So many people have come for so many years to learn about therapeutic parenting from us. We feel like now's a great time for us to tell you what that means, actually, what therapeutic parenting is and what the basic tenets are. A child who's been impacted by early childhood trauma often experiences many developmental, emotional, and even physiological challenges. The healing and help for those challenges truly does lie in relationships, and the child's biggest relationship comes from their parents, right? So in order to heal, a child needs to have at least one stable, committed adult who's available to pour into that child and do what the professionals have termed become a buffer for that child. And it's through that relationship that resilience is built and strengthened. When we talk about the attachment cycle at the beginning, when children haven't been traumatized, you know, that's exactly what's happening. The resilience is being built. So now we're talking about children who didn't have that opportunity early on because of whatever happened, right? And we're talking about how to very intentionally become that buffer. We discussed in last season in depth in episode two about the resilience building. So go back and listen to that. But today we're going to build on that idea of becoming that committed, stable, one caring adult. And what are the specific things that caregivers can do to help children heal? Yeah. So that leads us to therapeutic parenting. And I know that some parents or caregivers kind of get nervous when they hear that phrase because they often interpret it to mean therapy, that they're expected to do therapy, but that's not at all what we're talking about. Therapeutic actually means healing. So what are we going to do to help promote healing and healthy emotional development in our children? especially those who have come from hard place, you know, all those early adversities. So at ATN, we define therapeutic parenting as a trauma-informed, attachment-focused caregiving approach for families whose children have been impacted by early childhood trauma and those children who struggle with attachment and have difficulty building those healthy relationships. Therapeutic parenting aids in the development of new neural pathways. It's about rewiring that child's brain Mm -hmm. and creating pathways that build trust, that build trust in healthy, positive, safe relationships. So I think it's important that we first reflect on 
intention and really how intentional this type of parenting or caregiving is. And that's because really in order for it to work, we have to commit to it. We have to understand that children who have had early attachment traumas, which is, you know, trauma that has impacted their attachments and their early relationships, causes all those difficulties. And so that in order for them to heal, they have to have that strong relationship. Attachments and early relationships are the key here. And that's what we're really going to focus on. So therapeutic parenting, it really actually describes that intentional caregiving, that intentional parenting. And it focuses on balancing high structure, high nurture, so that we can foster feelings of safety and connectedness. And that is how that child can begin to heal and attach. Really therapeutic parenting, we're talking about having a plan because that intentionality means we can't just fly by the seat of our pants and try things here and there. We have to be very committed and intentional in what we're doing and who we're involving in the plan. Exactly. And so this is not a slam on people who are not therapeutic parents, but you know, a lot of people fly by the seat of their pants. <laughs> and the analogy that I love to use is all around baseball because my family loves baseball. We're all baseball fans. And so this makes a lot of sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. Parents who are, you know, like typical parents who aren't super engaged about strategizing their parenting, probably people who aren't listening to the podcast right now, because otherwise you wouldn't be listening, would you? I liken those folks to playing sandlot baseball or maybe being on their church league softball team, right? They know the rules. They can handle, you know, the basic play and it's done casually, if you will. And that's not to say that they're not good parents or even good enough parents. It's just that if your children haven't come from these adversities, you can get by with playing this kind of baseball, right? For many, many children and families, this is just the way things are. Not as thought out, not as strategized parenting. And that's good enough, right? This is because children that haven't had these adversities, they probably got their needs met early as infants, right? If you're playing that casual kind of baseball, or in this case, parenting, it's probably because your child has not presented with some of the challenges that many of our children from a traumatic background present, and they have more resilience from their early, early attachment. They're more regulated, more able to emotionally function in many ways. And so the way that many families parent are the way that their parents parented. And you know what? I did that too, right? I had no other model. So I parented the way I was parented and everybody does that or makes an intentional plan not to do that if you didn't have good parenting, right? So it's one way or the other. I'm either going to do what my parents did, or I'm going to do the opposite of what my parents did and not think much more about that. But therapeutic parenting is way more than that. It's very much like playing baseball in the major leagues. It's a whole different level of ball. Think about it for a minute playing church league baseball versus playing major league baseball and what the differences would be. Well, first of all, you're going to have to learn all the intricacies of the game, right? All the rules, 
not just the basic rules of three strikes and you're out, but all of them. You're going to have to study the game and probably watch other people play the game and train and train and practice and practice and read books and attend to people talking about how this is played and you get the picture, right? That's what the major league baseball players do. And that's what major league therapeutic parents do too. It's not easy. We have to really devote to it and we have to think about it a lot. And you know what? We can get really good at it. And that's what our kids really need from us is to step up and learn how to play at this higher level of parenting, if you will. As we watch our children move towards more emotional health, we can deepen their resilience. They're going to connect with us more and our family on a deeper level. And then they ultimately will become more relational. They'll become more regulated and ultimately more happy. And then we can take great pride in knowing that our major league parenting was worth it. Mm, I think that's really good. And I know because I have traveled this journey that you've got to be ready. You've got Mm -hmm. to be consistent, structured, predictable. So yeah, I like that comparison. But having said all that, I think it's also really important to point out that we don't have to be perfect. Exactly. Those major league baseball players are going to make mistakes, right? Right. So one of my favorite, I don't know, things that I learned throughout this journey is that we don't have to be perfect. That took a lot of pressure off. In fact, scientists have pinpointed that 30% accuracy is the goal. And what that means is that you are attuned and meet your child's cues and needs and follow through with, you know, what you need to do 30% of the time. It's called good enough parenting. So I think it's great to point that out so that as we go through this and talk about the tenants and the strategies and all of that, that we don't get overwhelmed and that we look at this through the lens of trying. And when we fail, getting back up again, like you mentioned with the players, practice, 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 and years, you know, baseball players sometimes take years and years to get good at their craft. So that's what works for us as well as caregivers. So We just want you to consider all the things that we're going to talk about and try something, make mistakes, try again, but it's that intentional. What we means is that you're being intentional to your commitment to continue and to be therapeutic and provide that environment. So, you know, it's not going to happen overnight and we've got to give ourselves grace. And it also really helps when you've got that team. We've mentioned that before in our podcast that you need support and a team co-parenting with a spouse or partner that is on the same page with you, that really also helps and makes a difference. Exactly. And that's something that my husband and I, when we were in the throes of some very challenging parenting times early on, as we were still very much learning how to be therapeutic parents, he was fond of saying, well, we can hang together or we're likely to each hang separately because it was just that desperate. Right. And we'd laugh about that. Or sometimes we'd cry about that depending on where we were emotionally. That reminds me of a whole topic of triangulation that sometimes our children can actually try to pit us against each other. That's probably its own podcast eventually for us to talk about. 
But the truth is that having your spouse, your significant other, or those who are helping you as a caregiver on the same page as you is a really good idea. And if the baseball team analogy helps you at all, you can tell them, hey, man, you're on my team. We're on our team together. And in order to figure out how to play this game the best, we're going to have to work together because that really is important. It really is. And I also want to point out that when we talk about therapeutic parenting, we're talking about anyone in the life of the child who is giving care, you know, so it could be a parent, it could be a teacher, it could be a grandparent. We know that we have a lot of foster kids who are receiving therapeutic parenting through foster parents or through a case manager, you know, it looks different for everyone. I think that's an important point, Ginger. The other thing, if you've listened this long and you're not a caregiver, a parent, and you're thinking, okay, I'm an educator or I work with children and I'm not really sure why I'm listening to this podcast, keep listening because the tenets that we're about to tell you are significant for therapeutic parenting, but they also are just great practice for working with any child, especially children who've had some ACEs, had some adversities. And if you understand these concepts and understand how important they are, what we're going to say isn't going to hurt any child. It's going to help every child and it's going to help your relationship with every child, regardless of whether you're their parent or caregiver or not. Well, that is such an important point. This therapeutic parenting is for everyone. So if you're looking at your classroom, trying to decide which students you need to therapeutically work with, just everyone. It works for everyone. And the same for in the home. You know, this type of parenting works so well for every child. So Mm -hmm. I think we're at the point that we can now dive in to these therapeutic parenting tenants. The first one is safety. It comes first. So everything that we're going to talk about throughout these, you know, podcasts on therapeutic parenting can kind of go in different order, but not safety. Safety will always be number one because everyone in the home, in the classroom, in any environment must feel safe. We have to create those feelings of safety. It of course is about physical safety, but it's not just that it's, you know, of course, basic needs have to be met, but emotional safety, mental safety, everyone must feel safe. I remember talking one time to a mom who had a child that she was worried about because the child was so terrified of the basement. And she just kept saying, there's nothing to be terrified at and everything's fine. I need you to go down to the basement. So to the mom, there was nothing scary about the basement. But what she didn't quite fully understand yet was that the basement was scary for that child and just telling the child the basement isn't scary didn't fix the problem because that child had experienced some abuse. So that basement was never going to be a safe place. You know, even though technically it was, it was never going to feel safe. So a child who's been impacted by trauma may detect threat or sense danger, even in places that aren't dangerous, or even with people who aren't dangerous inside they are sensing danger. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about felt safety and the concept that your nervous system has to feel safe. So, you know, a school 
even though a school could be a safe place, it might not feel safe to a child who has experienced something adverse in their life in a place that wasn't the school, but maybe there is a smell that reminds them of an unsafe thing or something they don't remember. They don't always know exactly why, but they could be sensing that danger. And so it triggers them in a way. So we really have to trust that child and understand that whatever behavior they're displaying is communicating something. Uh, We can't just say, you're wrong. The basement's safe. You're wrong. School is safe we need to look underneath what is going on and figure out if we can, what triggered it, or just believe the child that something triggered it. And that's also why it's so important that we create predictable environments and we're predictable in what we do and we're consistent in what we do is that that leads to the safety. And I know when I was first learning how to parent therapeutically, there was a whole concept by some folks that children, especially children with attachment difficulties, because those difficulties often look very purposeful and very manipulative at times because the children's walls that they put up around those attachment disorders are sometimes, you know, the words and things that they say, you know, sound very personal and manipulative. And so there was this whole theory of thought that you just didn't tell the kids what was about to happen. Um, So that you didn't get that kind of, you know, pushback from them. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, over time, what I learned, at least with my child and what I've witnessed with others is that it works better for all of us in terms of felt safety and building trust for us to be predictable and Mm -hmm. to be structured and to set the expectations so that they do know. Because what has happened in a lot of our children's lives is that they've come from chaos, right? Mm -hmm. They've come from unpredictability. They've come from a chaotic situation. They don't have that foundation on trust. And they're not sure that when an adult tells them something, that it can be trustworthy, right? Because that hasn't happened to them consistently before. So their reactions and behaviors to all of that has a lot to do with them not believing you or not expecting that you're really going to be the person that's going to be consistent and predictable. The more that you're able to do that, the more that you're able to create that safety. Yeah, that's so good. There are ways you've already mentioned quite a few, but I would love to talk about some specific ways of how to continue to create that predictability is oh so crucial. You can also kind of create that safety by holding space for emotions. And I really like this topic because it was counterintuitive to me at first when a child screamed or cried or did something because they felt angry or scared or whatever. I wanted to stop that because I didn't want them to feel that. But what I have had to learn is to hold space for those big emotions, meaning let them feel them, not tell them to stop, stop crying, you know. I wanted that moment to stop, but we actually have to play it through. That emotion is there for a reason. And so we have to sit with it and process it and accept those feelings without judgment, you know, and that's so hard when you're in a public place or in, you know, someplace where it's not convenient to feel angry or scared, but that's exactly when we have to really accept that and teach children that emotion is there for a reason. 
And feelings are what they are. They're not bad or good. They just are. And so there's a reason for them. This is a complete aside, sort of. So part of what happens to us when we are not major league therapeutic parents, when we are parents who are trying to parent like everybody else, is that we're easily swayed by the judgment of others. And so when you were talking about that and about there being public places and places that you don't want those big emotions and feelings to show up, all I could think about was how before I understood therapeutic parenting and that my child's behavior, first of all, was not something for me to control. It was something for me to understand. Before I understood that, I used to judge a lot of moms in the checkout lane when their kids were having meltdowns because they wanted candy bars, right? I would judge the parents by how bad their children were. Now that I know much more about therapeutic parenting and understand behaviors or communication, instead of watching the child have these big feelings and think, oh, that parent should do something to control that, I now watch the parent and see what they're doing when that's going on. And it's amazing. Like what they shouldn't be doing is giving them the candy bar. You know, trying to shame them into being quiet or any of those things. And believe me, I've tried all of those things. But what they should be doing is holding space for that big feeling and really trying to get underneath it. And so every once in a while, you see one of those major league parents in the checkout line and you see them saying things like, oh, wow, I see you really wanted that candy bar. Well, we're going to have dinner soon and you can't have that candy bar or anything sweet like that until after dinner. But I understand why that would make you feel that way. And then they're quiet about it. You perceive that they're calmer. They might internally be very nervous, but they're holding space, just like Ginger talked about, for that child to have that big feeling. It's not about controlling your child from having that tantrum in a store. That's just one example, right? It's more about recognizing that their child's having a big feeling and validating that and holding space for it, but still parenting them, still doing the things that you should be doing to keep them safe, to keep them healthy, all of those things. I don't know if that example makes sense or not, but I just felt like I needed to throw that in there. I think it's perfect because the other thing that you brought out with it is that the parent reflected back the feelings. I see that you're struggling. I see you're sad or hurt or angry or whatever it is, because sometimes these kids don't recognize it, but when it's validated, it's like, oh yes, that is what I'm feeling. And then they feel seen and heard Mm -hmm. and all of those things can really calm that behavior down. I mean, that parent was trying to co-regulate and by remaining calm, then that calm was contagious. And we talk about those tenants a lot. And that's such a good example that shows that. The other thing was that with your calm voice as the parent, you know, you're not escalating them because how many times have I yelled back, stop crying. Or I'll give you something to cry about. That's what my mom would have said, right? It's about keeping calm ourselves. So avoiding sarcasm, not giving the mean, heavy body language where you're leaning in and pointing as you lecture, all of those things. If you can pull back and use that soothing, calm volume and have that tone of voice that assures the child 
then that helps them feel seen. And really, when you're really present like that and attuned to understanding why they're crying or figuring out what happened, that attunement, oh, those things go a really long way to creating that safety. So other things that you can do along with that are talking about what's going to happen next. I know for my son, that was so important that he knew the plan and that he was in on the plan so that he could, you know, predict what would happen next. It just felt so safe for him to do that. If I were to say, we're leaving right now, I knew that was an instant trigger for him. So Mm -hmm. I had to learn quickly that I needed to say, here's the plan for today. And then the countdown in 20 minutes and 10, just so that, you know, we're all ready for that transition because transitions are really hard and scary for some of these kids. So I think that that is a parenting strategy that's gotten more into the mainstream because I see a lot of young parents, whether they're therapeutic parenting or not, be much more open to preparing their children for transitions and giving them choices. You know, we're leaving the house in 10 minutes. Are you wearing your tennis shoes? Are you wearing your sandals? Those types of things. It really does work because it empowers the child to have some control over what's about to happen next, the transition that they don't want to leave what they're doing to something else. But now I get to choose, do I want these shoes or these shoes? It's fascinating and a delight to see that there are parents who are using those strategies. You know, they're probably doing it for children who are not impacted by trauma. Because it is good for everyone and offering choices that we all can agree with really gives that safety and control too. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about shifting our expectations that focus more on the child's strengths and their needs than our own. And I'm not saying I do that perfectly. Oh my heavens, no. But if I can keep that as the focus, you know, focusing on the relationship rather than the behaviors, then it just always goes so much smoother. So One more thing about safety before we move on, and this is specifically for those of you who are parenting or caregiving children who may have some dangerous behaviors themselves, because safety is number one, always, always, not only your child's felt safety, but everybody in the family's felt safety. You have to be safe and feel safe. And that means the parents and all the other family members. So this is a hard topic to talk about. It's important though, that if you're one of those families and you're listening, that the children that are in your home due to their own dysregulations, their own impacts from their trauma and the big behaviors that they have around this sometimes can do things like injure the other children or the parents, or they may not be safe around the household pets. That's a huge problem it has to be addressed. It has to be addressed before you can even do all the other things that we're talking about in the rest of this podcast. It's critical that if this is happening for you and the other family members, that you need a whole nother level of support and interventions to get to a baseline of safety. That looks a little bit different for every family because like we said, everybody has to feel safe. We're not Pollyanna about that. We know it happens at ATN. We as an organization have 
ideas and suggestions to help you with that. If you are in that situation, we're not going to really take up the podcast talking about all of that because it could go so many different ways, but just know that we're with you and we believe that safety is the most important thing and no one in your family should have to live in a situation where they feel unsafe. So if we can help, that's what we're here for. The rest of the tenets that we're going to talk about can be taught and placed in any order and you can pick and choose ideas and concepts from them. But this safety, of course, is always the most important thing has to be put in place first. So true. The next tenant that we talk about is structure and nurture because they're both equally important that they need both of them in order to thrive. So We do that through boundaries and routines and consistency and predictability, which we've already touched on. And it's about finding that balance between firmness and softness. And listen, I know it can be a challenge. I've never been one of those really super organized moms. You know, it's a challenge. But if we can keep in our mind that whole vision of not being overly permissive or overly punitive, you know, just striking that balance so that we can supply those, you know, really loving interactions, kind words and touch, positive interactions, consistency and expectations balanced with boundaries and schedules and rules. That's how it is. So Ginger, we did at the beginning of this season, a whole podcast on this structure nurture balance. It really is the crux of being therapeutic and it's really impossible to get it right. So there you go. I've invited you to the major leagues and I'm telling you, you're never going to bat a thousand. That's what I'm telling you. For the baseball geeks out there, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You're never going to balance it correctly. The structure provides safety, right? We all know that we feel safer when we know what's expected of us, when we know where the boundaries are, when we know that our parents are going to keep us safe. And at the same time, we all feel safer and loved and connected to when you pour into us in a nurturing way, when you're attuned to your child, when you give them all of that nurture. And a lot of old fashioned parenting strategies were, well, you know, if you do this too much nurture, you're being permissive. And if you do too much structure, you're being punitive. And we're here to tell you that you have to figure out how to get good at both of those things in high levels for your kiddos. You just have to, because that's part of what our children need in mega doses without becoming punitive and without becoming permissive because permissive is unsafe. That's right. And punitive could re-traumatize, right? We don't want either one of those things to happen with our children. So we have to recognize what structure and nurture really are. I think that episode that we did before We'll go into that in much greater detail than you and I are going to talk about today. One of the concepts that you did outline here that I think we really want to focus on is the one of keeping their world small. So you want to start talking about that a little bit? I think it's important to understand that a lot of times kids who have been impacted by trauma get very easily overwhelmed. And so if we can keep their world small and dial it down and not compare them to their peers who are maybe doing a lot of sport or a lot of music or a lot of extracurricular activities. These kids are different and require different things. And so we cannot 
introduce too many people or too many activities into their world, it just will become chaotic. So we have to keep things simple and focus on the relationship and the attachment because they can't handle all the birthday parties and all the sleepovers and all the soccer camps and whatever else. And a lot of times these kids are already involved with a doctor or a case manager or appointments that we are already feeling like we're really busy and that's enough. And even that is too much. And we have to become their advocate and really understand what they can handle and what they can't. It's really hard. I mean, this keeping the world small, it feels counterintuitive. It definitely feels culturally counterintuitive because if your child is 10 or 11 years old, but they haven't been in your family a particularly long time, like maybe they've only been in there two or three years and they had some pretty rough things when they were younger, they can often have a developmental age that lags behind their chronological age. So instead of being 10 or 11 years old, they might function like they were four or five years old, which is really different, right? And you would do very different things with the four and five-year-old than you would do with the 10 or 11-year-old. Or they may even have actually gotten emotionally and developmentally stuck at the time when whatever major traumas were happening. So they could even be younger than that. And part of what they need therapeutically, remember, we're trying to help them heal, is to walk through those developmental steps. And one of the things that I didn't think about when I was just parenting in my church league baseball parenting example with children who weren't impacted by trauma, what I didn't think about was that child development is a linear process. You have to go through the development steps. So if your emotional development is behind how old you are chronologically, you aren't going to just all of a sudden hop from being a four-year-old to being a 10-year-old. You have to go through those steps, right? It makes sense when you say it out loud, but I hadn't ever said it out loud to myself before. And then I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I am going to have to help my child get from this emotional age and emotional ability to this one. And one of the ways that you do that is that you keep them in a smaller situation where there are fewer people interacting with them like they would have had when they were four or five years old until they start to be able to show signs of being able to do more and more things. And then you expand. The challenge in all of that is twofold. One of them is that the child might have come to you from a situation where people let them do whatever they wanted to do or whatever was chronological age appropriate. So the child themselves is like, I don't want to give up my soccer. I don't want to give up all of these activities. I want to, you know, participate in these other things and not really focus on learning how to be part of the family or, you know, or therapeutically working on all of those things. And then lots of our families get major pushback from the people around them, their extended family, their social circle, because if you bring a new child into your life, who's 10 and your sister has a child who's 10, the obvious assumption is that they're going to be able to just do a whole bunch of things together, right? And that may not be the case. And that's where things start to get really hard for us as therapeutic parents to be able to step back and go, you know what, my child is not ready for that yet. And instead, my child needs to spend some of these things doing developmentally the steps that they missed. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? 
Yeah. And I feel like it's so important to talk about because it really should shape our expectations. What we are asking this child to do, they may not be able to do. And so, you know, you wouldn't discipline or consequence a two-year-old for lying or spitting, but boy, that 10-year-old boy that you talk about, we get, you know, instantly angry or our buttons pushed if they lie or steal or do something that they should know better. Mm -hmm. So if we understand that developmentally that 10-year-old is much, much, much younger, then we would have more grace and consequence differently and teach longer than just automatically expecting them to know what to do. I think that's part of it is truly understanding what it was like to be who they were before they came to us. That understanding that is really hard for us. And that whole chaotic thought process, those of us, you know, that didn't have that chaotic thought process have a really hard time understanding that. So sometimes our children, I mean, they're the biggest people who are pushing against what we're trying to do. But then when our mother-in-law is also pushing against us and the teacher is saying, you know, you should probably let her take ballet. That's all she talks about wanting to do. And what you know is that in the ballet situation, it's really not a good situation for her because there's no structure there. Things are not happening the way you know that they need to happen. So it's hard to buck the system, if you will, and say, I'm going to make this child's world small. It's not going to stay small forever, but right now we just need to work on, you know, the steps that they missed in terms of relationship and self-regulation and all the things that our kids need. That's exactly right. And so we set those limits and we set those boundaries around those actions that we consider maladaptive or inappropriate, but all the while still remaining connected to them so that when those kids are ready and receptive, then that's at the point where we can help them find healthier ways of communicating and we can meet their needs and help them slowly become, you know, independent. But it's that paradigm shift of understanding where they're at. Well, the next tenant is one that's going to be obvious to all of you, and that is connection and, you know, Dang, if we don't talk about connection a lot on this podcast. If you remember from our podcast episode on being relational last season at the very beginning, before a caregiver can effectively help a child heal through general correction, they must connect and be emotionally safe. Once a child feels safe, then they can begin to trust their caregiver and build the resilience. Connection is important, especially when our children push us away. And that's the challenge, right? Is that children who are impacted by trauma and especially those who are impacted by attachment traumas and challenges are going to likely push away our initial efforts at connecting to them. That's part of the situation. That's part of their worldview and their self-view and they're afraid and they don't want to let somebody hurt them again, right? So when their nervous systems can't tolerate that intensity of stress, they become hyper over aroused, hyper aroused or hypo aroused or go into a shutdown. So that's that whole fight, flight, freeze type thing. Developing this strong connection helps us to understand what our children's behavior is communicating and helps our children find other healthy ways to communicate their negative feelings. So 
we have to, as therapeutic parents, commit to the concept that behaviors are communication, period, flat out, that behaviors are not something we have to control, have to extinguish, have to correct, you know, so that our children are more presentable. We do want them to get behaviors that allow them to function in society better. So don't get me wrong about that. But the truth is we have to look at behaviors as a communication and we have to focus on the relationship we have with the child, not the behaviors. We have to stay connected to our children, even when they're doing some things we don't much like and put that relationship first. And that's hard work, folks. That's hard work. It is. I remember you telling me one time that sometimes it looks different than what we think. Like sometimes it's on the other side of a slammed door. You know, when we teach this and we show pictures, we have this darling picture of a mama otter and a baby otter holding paws (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they call it, you know, rafting so that they don't lose each other on the water. And recently I was at a church camp with my daughter and we went to a wave pool and everybody was on their rafts Mm -hmm. and out of the blue, somehow one kid started it and it spread really fast. They were all linking arms. They were rafting (laughs) and I just sat there and watched, oh my gosh, you know, it was a fun moment for me to put the concepts together, you know, in a literal and figurative way. I went out there with them and after an hour of doing that, I was so sore riding the waves, but linking to kids and holding on as tight as I could. And whenever the link was broken, the kids would say, oh no, we lost Ellie. We got to go get Ellie. It was really cute. And I just kept thinking, I get it now. Like we don't want anyone lost. We really need to stay linked as best we can, but it's not always easy. And I think about, especially sometimes teenagers that they need a little bit of privacy or they're really angry and they'll slam the door, but we can always be on the other side of the door saying we're here when you're ready and try to keep that connection as best we can. Great analogy. I love it. What you said that I really loved was first of all, that how tiring it was. Let's be real. Yeah. And that you're linking arms and hanging on through the waves. And I'm just like, okay, that sounds like life in general. A lot of times for therapeutic caregivers and therapeutic parents. And then when the link is broken, somebody's going, oh no, we have to go get them, right? That's an important part of this too. You brought up the fact that when we teach this, we use otters. And that leads me to a whole nother thing to say to you all is that we made these cards with animals on them, mostly for ourselves, not just Ginger and I, but for other parents at ATN initially years ago to remind ourselves of these tenants that we're talking about. The safety one is shown by a mama bear and her bear cubs, because, you know, who's going to protect bear cubs better than a mama bear, right? And then like Ginger said, the connection one is the otters holding paws and rafting. And that's, you know, such a good analogy of the connection. The structure and nurture is depicted as a sheepdog because sheepdogs provide both the structure of the sheep, right? Getting them from one field to the next and helping them stay together and keeping them protected and safe, but also will sit down beside them and be caretaking and loving. And so that's the balance right there, right? 
between the structure and the nurture. So we picked those animals as another way to illustrate all of this. And if you're interested in that, ATN does have those parent cards, both in English and Spanish. And some of the concepts we're talking about today are illustrated there as well. Those will be in the show notes, I'm sure. Back to connection. It's really important, just like those otters, for us to stay connected to our children. And one of the ways we have to do that is by maintaining a stance of curiosity about their behaviors. Ginger, when she is doing this as a presentation, shows a slide with an iceberg that I think is really powerful, that we are looking for what the behaviors are communicating, and all of that is underneath the water, right? We have to be curious about the why. Why are they acting this way? What is possibly causing that? What can we do to help in that way? How can we help and make things different? The trick is that children who come to us with a background in trauma, lots of children who don't, but especially children who do, often don't understand what's behind their behavior. When we say to our children, why are you doing this in our frustrated voices, Nine times out of 10, they're going to go, I don't know. And they usually mean it, right? That they don't know. Even when it feels so intentional, even when they say really intentional, hurtful things, and you know that they know it's going to be hurtful, they still don't know why they're doing it. As therapeutic caregivers, we can help them make the links between their thoughts and their feelings and their behaviors. We can do this by being curious, by being observant, by trying to, you know, put ourselves in their shoes. And we can also then guide them by some tools like saying, I wonder if you're feeling this way, or even not directly at them. I wonder if it's overwhelming for Johnny to be in this big gymnasium where it's super noisy. And Johnny will often either say yes it is or come over and maybe like grab onto your hand or your leg like yep you got it right or even say no it's not that I'm mad at my friend because they'll go ahead and stop while you're going hmm and out loud pondering their feeling it's an interesting little psychological trick I think I mean like it works really well I wonder if this is what's going on with my dear child and you say that out loud and they will either confirm or not confirm it for you but it gets them thinking about their feelings too and remember thinking about your feelings and having your feelings are two different places in your brain right So what you're doing is you're thinking about their feelings with your cognitive brain, and then that gives them a minute to think about their feelings too, which is a new experience sometimes for our kids, right? Yeah, I love that. I love the I wonder statements. I think it's about trying to find and figure out what the barriers are or what is the roadblocks in the way and being able to move them. And we can come right out and ask, what's in your way? What's stopping you? How can I help? And giving them the understanding that it's not you. There are things in the way that we need to help and intervene or accommodate. There's nothing wrong with you. We need to find out what happened because I think there are things that go unnoticed that if we start asking questions, you know, we can maybe get to the root of. So 
Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's something that needs to be diagnosed. Maybe there's a language processing disorder. There are things that can be accommodated with IEPs. I'm kind of going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but also just looking at it from that different perspective of seeing the behavior for what it really is, because oftentimes we intervene in a way that doesn't help. Well, and the curious questioning, I mean, that's an incredible tool for a therapeutic caregiver or for a teacher who wants to be more therapeutic in the way, more trauma-informed in the way that they handle things, because it helps build the relationship. There's not a judgment that's coming across from the adult. There's not a, I wish this child was somebody different or changed their behavior sort of response, but it's just a, hmm, I wonder what's happening here. And that's really affirming to a person. I mean, like if people wonder what's happening with me, I know that that means they care about me, right? I know that they care about what's happening inside of me. And so that's being connected, which is really at the crux of all of that. So folks, if you've been listening to us for any time at all, you know that connection, which is also known as relationship, is the hallmark of helping children with attachment challenges and childhood trauma to heal. And so is relationship sister, which is regulation. So we knew this session would be a two-parter because we have so much to tell you about therapeutic parenting. We're going to tackle the other tenets of being a therapeutic parent in our next episode. And we're going to start with regulation because it's that important. We'll see you next time. We look forward to talking with you soon. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Next time, Julie and Ginger will finish the tenets that make up therapeutic parenting and talk with us all about how we maintain a therapeutic environment in our homes and our families. A special thank you to Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at www.attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Lorraine Schneider. 